Welcome to Here's a Social on the Air, episode 69. We love to make great products. Our mission is to make the world more open and connected. Google's mission is to organize Yahoo is about Around the clock, America's deeper mind begins. More than 20 years ago, the radio was learning to talk. Coming to you from our world headquarters in San Francisco, welcome to Hearsay Social on the Air. I'm Victor Gaxiola. So here we are in the month of December, uh, preparing for the last month of the year, and uh, really wishing and hoping that all of our listeners uh, had a very happy Thanksgiving and got to spend a little time with their families and loved ones and just surrounded with good food and good cheer. I certainly had a great time with my family who uh, came up to visit from Southern California and, of course, got our fill of turkey as well as football. So it was a great week and hopefully y'all enjoyed that. So in today's episode, we have a very special interview with uh, Craig Iskowitz, who is the uh, founder and CEO of the Ezra Group. He's also a publisher of two blogs, one on wealth management, which is wmtoday.com, and one on career advice and improving workplace effectiveness, which is thinklikeaconsultant.com. And in our conversation, we're going to cover a number of different topics around social media and adoption of digital technology. And I had met Craig, as we uh, talk about briefly in the interview, at an event out in the East Coast. And then uh, we traded and exchanged it through social based on a a blog post that he was writing. So without further ado, we hope you enjoy this interview with Craig Iskowitz. All right, so joining me in Studio 360 here in San Francisco, it gives me great pleasure to invite Craig Iskowitz to the podcast. So welcome, Craig. Hey, thanks, Victor. It's fantastic to be here. So I'm just trying to remember how it is that we first met, because I think we've only really met through social circles, right? On LinkedIn and- social media we met. Yeah, that's No, we met at a conference. It was either FRA or MMI or- That's what it was. It was MMI. That's right. And you were on a panel, and you were speaking very eloquently about your product and Mm -hmm. about social media and the power of social media. And I, uh, I wrote up uh, a summary of that and posted it on my blog. That's right. And leveraged the power of social media to promote your, uh, your information that you were putting out. That's right. I remember that now. It's a small world. It is. And it's it's an even smaller industry. yeah, it's it, what I found is just like the ecosystem of the financial services industry, and very specifically to those that focus on technology, is mm-hmm. extremely small because we run into the same circles. So I know that were you at the T three conference? Not or this one. You, but you wrote about it, right? So, I wrote about it. I, I, well, through the power of social media, mm-hmm. yeah, is uh, when I'm at the conference, I do a lot of tweeting, and I'm, I'm which is a micro blog, and uh, then. I stole this from another blog somewhere where they take the best tweets and make a blog post out of that. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, I, don't, I started doing that every conference I go to. I take all my tweets and tweets from other people and I'll add my commentary. So it gives a quick running overview, which is very quick for people to consume. And, and you know, nowadays people want to consume things much quicker mm-hmm. all the time. 
Uh, so, then, yeah. so tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization. So what is it that you do? Sure. Well, I'm a, I'm a Jersey boy. <laughs> I grew up in uh, New Jersey, uh, down by Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and we, now I live in East Brunswick, New Jersey, which is where my home and office is. And in South Jersey, you're near Philadelphia. So I'm, I'm an Eagles fan from growing up there, but mm-hmm. now I live in the Giants-Jets world. So <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a hassle, but uh, it's, it's uh, something we just have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what do I, so I'm a consultant and I run a consulting firm called Ezra Group. And we do uh, business and technology strategy in the wealth management space. Mm-hmm. I also have a blog called Wealth Management Today which is my area, which was my outlet for my thoughts and ideas and my commentary on the industry. Mm-hmm. Now, have you worked in the industry for your whole career or what was it that got you into this line of work? Well, I have a, um, I have a computer science degree. So mm-hmm. I started out as a programmer, network engineer, hmm. uh, manager of network engineers and worked my way up through there. And uh, then I realized uh, in working with a lot of consulting firms that they were really making more money than we were. Of delivering the financial services, and I thought I would take a shot at that, and uh, I went off and, and joined a small consulting firm as a partner, and sort of I call that my MBA. You know, when you start a company and you're working at a, at a small company, mm-hmm. and you're doing all, all the uh, the grunt work and, and getting things done, you're really le- you're learning how to run a business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it was all so the, the company I started out with was ADP, when they had a brokerage division which they spun off into Broadridge Financial. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I worked there for 10 years. So got a good experience in Wall Street working for all the, all the, uh, the big wall, the all-time, all-time Wall Street firms like the Goldman's and Solomon's and Lehman's when those companies actually mm-hmm. existed. Uh, and then moved on to be uh, a consultant and just really doing anything that broker-dealers or small RIAs would need, whether it was trading floor moves or compliance software or trading software, we built everything, uh, whatever needed to be done. Uh, and that was those those are fun times, and then I started my own firm and uh, started in wealth management a little over ten years ago, mm-hmm. and have been really focusing more. I started from my first wealth management project, focusing more and more until my entire business was all wealth management, uh, and that was sort of serendipity and sort of just you know things just sort of worked out that way. And and also I liked it. I realized I really enjoyed the the wealth management business as opposed to the market data business or the trading business, which mm-hmm. I've been in before. So it sounds like you kind of had this background that mixed both the technology and also the financial mm-hmm. services. So that's why kind of this very small ecosystem of people can kind of understand both camps. I'm glad you pointed that out and saved me from having to do that. <laughs> yeah, so that's one of the things I liked about where my career went that I got to do, since I like both. Mm-hmm. And I got to learn more on the business side and spend a lot more time Having the, the technology degree, uh, technology background, computer science degree, and uh, networking engineering uh, certificates and things, and understanding how the innards work of databases and, and networks and, and technology, then that gave me a good, a good um, uh, base. Then moving on to the business side, understanding how the business works, how a broker-dealer works, uh, how the back office works, how the end-to-end wealth management process works uh, from the business side. Not just looking at it as a techie, but then understanding the motivation and and the business models. So mm-hmm. that that also helps, and and that's really rounded out my business where I have uh, my firm works on both ends. So mm-hmm. uh, where some consulting firms work on just one side, on the either the client side or the technology side, we work on both. Mm-hmm. So our clients are from large broker dealers, asset managers, RIAs, as well as technology firms. 
so firms that provide wealth management platforms, that provide uh, investment advisory platforms, uh, firms that do any, any kind of technology work, uh, startups that need uh, advice on how, on how to build their product, uh, uh, companies that need help with, uh, so we're talking about product management, product strategy, uh, some product development at a very high level, uh, pricing, uh, some marketing, and overall technology strategy and competitive analysis. So mm-hmm. that's on, on the vendor side. Mm-hmm. And then on the client side, it's, it's a lot of the things that the client would need, uh, a lot of vendor evaluation, uh, and that the vendor evaluations are usually being driven by some business need. Mm-hmm. So in starting out helping uh, firms with their vendor evaluations, we slowly moved up the, up the food chain to, well, why are you doing this vendor evaluation? Well, we want to go open architecture. Or we want to go, we're a retail firm, we want to move into institutional. Or we're a high net worth firm, we want to move to more mass market or vice versa. Mm-hmm. So, so we help the clients with both the technology side as well as the strategy side. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the financial services industry is constantly undergoing evolution and changes, especially as it relates to the adoption of new digital technologies. And there's a lot of new vendors and people that come out with new products. So how do you evaluate all the different vendors and how do you stay abreast of the changes? You're right, there are a lot of, it's a constant change, Mm -hmm. especially with technology, as fast as things are moving these days. And it used to be wealth management was sort of behind the times Mm -hmm. and it didn't move quite as fast, but it's caught up and is moving almost as fast as the rest of the technology world. The business that I'm in helps because my clients want me to do that. And so when I get a project, it often requires a lot of research in a, in a particular area. Mm-hmm. So I wind up doing a deep dive in uh, oftentimes one very narrowly focused area, which requires bringing in a lot of vendors in that area and seeing the demos of their products and, and talking to them and, and getting a lot of information about their new products, where they're going. So it's my work all helps me keep abreast, uh, doing a lot of reading. I have a number of, uh, of blogs I read and a number of publications that I read. Uh, I've got a bunch of different tools that, that bring in feeds that help me uh, filter out what stories I want to read. And, you know, it's a constant battle of the stack of stuff gets higher and higher and how do you go through those. Uh, but it's just something you have to keep working on. And if you, since I like what I do and I like the industry, it's not really worked to me when I read reading about, up about the, the latest technology or the latest trend. Mm-hmm. And also what's interesting is looking at outside technologies and how they will eventually impact wealth management. Right. That's, so, I mean, that's what we see, too, from the standpoint of, from an innovation standpoint, is part of a lot of the work that I think we do at Hearsay Social is really looking at some of the trends that are changing and affecting various industries outside of financial services and trying to see exactly how we think it's going to affect financial services down the road. And I can't help but but see the parallels that exist based on the work that you're doing, how similar it is to what financial advisors do and wealth managers do and, asset, and agents out there in the field, which is really helping their clients make great decisions based on the information and, and the various investments that are out there and helping them design those strategies. But ultimately, the decision does rest with the client. Oh, exactly. I'm, I'm going to steal that. <laughs> yeah, well, that feel analogy. free. Feel free. No, you're right, because I, I need to be agnostic. Mm-hmm. As a consultant, uh, clients want to know they can trust me, that I'm objective, and that when, when they're getting my advice, it's not biased one way or the other. So I'm technology agnostic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same on my blog. I don't take any advertising on my blog. I take no payments on my blog. So whatever you're reading on the blog is my opinion, uh, and you know, unbiased by, by any... By, uh, you know, any outside influences, mm-hmm. and the advisor needs to be the same, and and, and that's that's some of the, the good things that have come from technology and from the innovation in the industry, especially on the digital side, 
where they the digital advisors, also called robo advisors, have have pushed a lot of changes to the industry that, that would have been resisted for many years, mm-hmm. such as price transparency and you know revenue transparency, where the money's coming from, how you're being paid, uh, and those types of things. You know, we would never have been talking five years ago that an advisor is is putting you into cash or a large broker deal is putting you into cash, a larger cash allocation in order to take the float like Charles like Schwab is that that conversation would never come up mm-hmm. now it's a big issue that you have these firms fighting back and forth don't go with them don't go with them this, they're taking this money they're taking that money everyone's got to make money somehow but as long as it's transparent then it's fine mm-hmm. as long as everyone realizes where where you're making the money then they can make their own decisions to which way they want to go right and I'm glad you brought up RoboAdvisor and I know you've written about it in the past is because it's something that comes up Fairly often, and uh, you get people who see it obviously as a threat in some cases, and others see it as an opportunity. Mm. Where do you sit on this uh, as as it relates to robo advisors? Um, to put it to put it uh, in a in a, a quick phrase, uh, robo advisors are dead. Uh, and what I mean by that is a, the robo advisor. If you define a robo advisor as a standalone B two C beta only company, digital on low touch platform. Mm-hmm. That type of company is dead. There's no future in them. Uh, so, and there are, very, there are very few of those left. Many, most of them have pivoted into other things. You know, Betterment uh, pivoted, they launched Betterment Institutional where they're offering a platform to advisors mm-hmm. and, uh, and other products. So that's really where, if they're going to survive, that's what they're going to have to do because the and this is uh, what I've written about extensively is that the technology is not new in, that robo advisors use the the, the idea of uh, automating this whole process is not new and everyone's going to have the technology soon now that fidelity is offering betterments and pershing is, has the, their own and schwab has their own and tds all we having every advisor with a custodian is going to have access to a very cheap if not free digital channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, every platform is offering th- their own robo platform. Investnet and uh, you know and their competitors are all offering uh, a, a, a bundled or almost free digital channel. So what I call them was advisor bots. You're going to see a million little robo advisors, but they're going to be advisor bots. Every advisor will have their own digital channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there won't be any there won't be any pressing need to go to a betterment or a Wealthfront, or a, or, a, or a dozen other purely B2C robos, if any even exist uh, in a year or two, because every advisor is going to already have that option. And, when, and, and most investors want to invest locally. They feel more comfortable transferring their life savings or a portion of their life savings to someone they know, whether it's through a handshake or through a phone call or through their website, They'd rather go with somebody they know. They know. Mm-hmm. So if your local advisor in your town or, or state or even you know city has a digital solution, why wouldn't you use that versus using a mass marketed brand? Uh, so that's going to be a tremendous comp- a tremendous competitor uh, for these B two these standalone B two C beta only firms, which, which which what people mean when they say robo advisor. They, they're trying to they, they also lump in a lot of other firms mm-hmm. that are platforms. Or that are financial planning tools, and I don't consider those robo advisors. They're just they're just innovative digital solutions. Mm-hmm. So the the good thing about the, the whole trend is that it, it really launched this tremendous explosion of innovation, where we now we have educational firms and we have 
these these micro advisors, I call them, like Acorn and Go Direct, um, where they're saying, "Give us a nickel, give us a dollar, we'll take it, and we'll invest it for you, and it won't co- it'll cost you a very you know very small amount." Uh, and I see those as being the future of advice. Because you know you, we're in the industry, so we see advice differently. Mm-hmm. The majority of the population of non-advisory uh, personnel, non-advisory industry people, don't see it that way. That's it's something that's a very small part of their life. They don't either they don't understand it or they don't understand the consequences. They're not thinking about retirement planning. They're not thinking about financial planning like we are thinking about it all the time. Right. Uh, so these these small tools that take small amounts of money out of your checking account or allow you to invest directly uh, f- without a large commitment, those are the ones that are really going to take off and are really going to get traction because they're, people feel more comfortable with that type of investing option than trying to sign, you know, sign an ACAT form and transfer over X thousands of dollars at once. It's, it's a, there's a lot of friction in that transaction. Mm-hmm. And that's something that people, a lot of VCs talk about how they're, they're throwing hundreds of millions of dollars into these robo platforms, these B2C robos, and they'll never get their money back because the, the, they're looking at, uh, they're trying to compare it to Facebook or WhatsApp or other firms that have gone to, you know, into billion do- billions of dollars of valuation or, or Uber and things like that, and it's a completely different transaction. Uh, if I can put my marketing strategy hat on, when you're talking about, it's, it's a lot different when you buy a book on Amazon, it's a discrete transaction. You buy a book, you're not, um, you're not signing a contract with them mm-hmm. to have to buy a book from them every month for the rest of your life. Right. Uh, you're not transferring your whole library over to Amazon when you make a, that transaction. It's, it's a discrete tr- transaction. You sign for Facebook. It's a free, discrete thing. You can use it or not. Uh, but when you sign up with an advisor, you're signing up to to move your life savings or a large part of it to that firm and trusting them to then manage it for you. And that, that's a lot of friction in that transaction. You're not going to get the same kind of scale, instant scalability that some of these firms have with the hockey stick, where you go from nothing to nothing. All of a sudden, you got, I got 300 million users. Great. You know, you know let's go IPO. It, it, it just, it's too difficult. Mm-hmm. And if, as we've seen, the, the larger B2C robos have all stagnated. You know, they got to two, three billion, and they can't, you don't hear them talking anymore because mm-hmm. they, they're, they're hitting a plateau. Because all the oxygen has been sucked out of, out of the market by Vanguard and Schwab and everyone else. Uh, and they don't have a compelling enough offering. Right. You know, a beta only, we'll manage a basket of ETFs for you for 30 basis points, isn't compelling enough to get enough people off of what they're doing now or, to, or getting into something that they haven't been doing before. Right. And in the value proposition is certainly different depending on the number of assets you have because you can see us... A strategy like that may be working for the investor that only has $8,000 to invest versus that has 800000 or $8 million. The expectations coming into the relationship are so different. And uh, I think our position is just from the standpoint of looking at technology overall is how can the community, and by community I mean the financial services community, fully leverage technology just to increase that the ability to have a stronger relationship. Uh, so looking at technology to enhance uh, the capabilities as opposed to replace uh, the capabilities that that human value proposition mm-hmm. brings to the table. Indeed. So what have your been your main observations, you know, because based on the consulting work that you do, what are your observations when it comes to digital technology and what are some of the best practices that you'll see out in the field? Well, something I, that I've written about, not related to, if you're talking about a digital channel, it's not related to the digital channel, but 
one thing I've written about and, and done in my consulting practice is platform consolidation. Okay. And this affects many firms, large and small. Mm -hmm. Anyone that's been in, in the business for more than a couple years winds up with multiple platforms. Uh, someone who's done it right at a very large scale would be a Merrill Lynch, where they had 20 years worth of platforms. They had five separate platforms, um, one for each different type of product. And they managed to consolidate them down into one, which they call Merrill One, uh, which is running on a couple different vendors, but they've customized it mm -hmm. and, and made it made it for them. And it's primarily for their advisors' experience to make it easier for them. But it, it translates to the clients because they have less paperwork. They they consolidate their assets, so their their fees are lower. So the clients like it as well. And that type of um, platform consolidation can work and can be efficient at any at any level. Even the smaller broker dealers or RIAs also will also have multiple platforms for different products, or multiple or multiple things that they've they've grown up with over the years that they just left and let running because it was working. And now, as they're getting larger, things are ca causing problems. There's friction between them. Uh, there, there's too much. To, the, the logistics are too much to manage it all. So, they need to bring in and, and consolidate. And it's a hard thing to do because it requires uh, a decision to be made to go one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Do you bring in a new vendor? Do you, cons do you pick one of the vendors you have existing? Uh, what are you giving up? Uh, oftentimes they have, they'll try to go for a best of breed approach and bring in a couple different vendors, but then you wind up having integration issues and you never know who to, who to blame when there's a problem. Hmm. So a lot of my clients will go one way or the other and that's usually a, just a matter of personal taste or they had a, a, a bad experience with one way or the other. Previously, now they've switched. Uh, it's like, when you work for a large company, you'll find, uh, and Hearsay Social is getting larger, you'll see this here as well, that you may be aligned by vertical. Okay, we're all focusing on this this vertical, but then we're focusing on that vertical. Well, now we're having problems because the verticals aren't talking, we're not sharing resources, let's do it the other way, where all the programmers are in a group and all the business analysts are in a group, all the project managers are in a group, that way they can share and, and use best practices. And then you go, well, our clients aren't being serviced well, they're, they're being pissed off because we have to go through all this bureaucracy to get the right people. Let's go back to verticals. So you'll keep switching back and forth. So we see the same thing uh, with our clients that they want best of breed because they want to pick the very best in every area. And then they'll do that a couple of years and be pissed off at all the integration issues and things aren't working right. And there's a lot of manual steps and then they want to go all in one. Mm -hmm. So they'll bring in one vendor does everything and then they don't do everything great. They do everything okay, but it's all in one place. So they're happy with that for a while, then they become unhappy. So it's, it's a constant cycle. Mm -hmm. And with the clients that you work with, and I know that you have a variety of different types of clients, where, in your opinion, do you think they need you the most? Uh, to be uh, to be an objective uh, advisor, mm -hmm. really. It's like, like you said before, to be like the advisor's advisor. So mm -hmm. uh, these firms want someone who has experience working in a lot of different other other clients and has seen what works and what doesn't work, and also who knows how these vendors operate under the hood. And not just through the marketing fluff and not just looking at their websites or not just seeing demos, but actually working at these vendors, working for them and understanding how they operate and understanding their strengths and weaknesses at a very deep level. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's what they're looking for when they call, when they call my firm, uh, that they're going to get an objective viewpoint, a technology agnostic viewpoint uh, and someone to guide them through the process. Mm -hmm. And so what is working? 
I mean, what technology is working? Yeah, I mean, you know, I do a lot of different projects. That's the good thing about my business. And you could also say it's bad. I'm not a specialist. I don't mm -hmm. specialize in any one. I specialize in wealth management, which is great. Uh, and what I like about it is there's so many different areas. If, I, if I'm going to one asset manager and they say, well, we want to, we've been a manufacturer for many years of our own products and we love it, but mm -hmm. we want to go open architecture. Now, what works for them is not necessarily going to work for a firm that is already open architecture, but maybe wants to expand their product set, or they maybe want to start manufacturing products, or maybe they want to, um, you know, they're open architecture, but they don't do SMAs, or they don't do UMAs, so they may, they need a UMA solution. Mm -hmm. So what works for them may not work for somebody else, right? Because even a U, what a UMA is to one vendor, or rather to one um, broker-dealer, may be different to another broker-dealer. So you can take the same solution. Like I can take a TAMP and provide very different solutions to different clients. Uh, some uh, clients, some broker deals will use a TAMP to take over their whole platform. So all their advisors move over to it. Sometimes they just take a piece of it. I just want the proposal system. Let's just use that. We've got our own stuff, so they want to integrate that. Or I just want to set up a separate business unit just for new clients. So they'll set it up on the side. So it's, it's, very, it's very different. Uh, so you've really got to have a different mindset and be able to think outside the box. Mm -hmm. It's a corner phrase. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and look at what has worked in the past and try to adapt it to today's clients' needs. And so what is it of the work that you do that you enjoy the most? Uh, each client is different. That each client has a, has a unique business model, even though we're all in wealth management. They have their own value added and how you protect that. So... One of the things I say a lot to my clients is, you know, they ask me what they should be outsourcing. It's you want to outsource everything that doesn't affect your value add. Why do clients come to you, XYZ asset manager or XYZ broker dealer or, or, or RIA? Why do they come to you? What's the reason? Is it your stock picking? Then you don't want to outsource that. If that, that's why they are coming to you. Is it your relationship building? Is it is it your financial planning? Is it how you're looking at holistically across the all you know the client's entire uh, book of business? Then outsource everything else. And, and just keep that. Uh, and, then, and that's a good segue into what's working is, is, is looking at it holistically. And a lot of firms where they just focused on the investment management side for many years and they kept them in business, now with all this uh, relatively cheap beta available, they can't just do that. They can't just provide investment management. They're not going to beat the market. They need to provide a holistic viewpoint. They need to provide financial planning and look at the liability side and bring in data aggregation to see uh, held away assets and really get a full picture of the client's total financial life. And the, one of the reasons for that is it's being driven from the bottom up. What we used to say many years ago when we talked about UMA, when that was first exciting and new, was UMAs are sold, they are not bought. No client walks into his advisor's office and says, I want to buy this UMA thing. <laughs> they could care less. They have no clue what it is. The advisor has to sell that to the client. It's an advantage for him, not necessarily the client per se, uh, although they do get an advantage of, with less paperwork and, and some, some benefits, but a lot of the advantages operationally on the advisor side. So they need, need to sell it to the client. But when it comes to holistically viewing your financial picture, both liabilities and assets, that is being driven from the bottom up because clients have access to tool free tools like Mint mm -hmm. uh, and what Personal Capital is offering a ag data aggregation tool and Yodely and uh, other tools that clients have access to on the consumer side. So they're seeing, I can look at my checkbook and I can look at my 401k and my mutual funds all in one place. 
Mr. Advisor, why can't you do the same thing? And he's going to go, I don't know why. So unless they have that capability, they're going to start losing out, losing business to other platforms or other advisor firms that have that and can train their advisors on how to use it. So that's all. That's all. Another way, similar to what you're doing on the social side, it's on the financial side that they are building a deeper relationship. If you can work with your clients and you can say, "Hey, Mr. Client, I see you have a CD coming due next month, or I see you, you've got a rollover. Let me help you with that, or I see you're having you know, your spending is going up above what your budget was, or you know all these different things you can offer the client advice." on their life. Hey, you're in this 401k and these mutual funds, they put you in a very high expense ratio. You should go into these other ones, give you the same beta or the same exposure with a lower expense ratio. And that's a, more of a sophisticated tool mm-hmm. that can first bring in the data from the 401k and then analyze it and provide a, a, a timely alert to the advisor. No one's doing that perfectly yet or really well yet. There's, there's bits and pieces of it around. But once uh, firms start to do that well, and consistently, you're going to see a whole different. Uh, you're going to, that'll be a big shakeup in the industry. I predict. We talked about robo advisors and the fact that you know. I think we both agree that it is a non-threat. If nothing else, what it's what it has created, at least in the conversation around financial services is this need for better transparency. And if Mm. it's forced the hands of some of these organizations to really make a greater investment in their technology so that they can build up the tools that make it easier for the advisor or the agent to spend Mm. more time on what they're really good at, which is that one-on-one relationship, Mm. I'm just kind of curious from a crystal ball, and I was like asking our guests, where do you see the future of digital technology and financial services? Where do you think Mm. we're headed? Well, I'll give you one uh, idea that I have, one prediction that I have related to data aggregation. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a combination of a couple of things I read about. One is data, data aggregation, and one is uh, risk tolerance and suitability mm-hmm. uh, and, and compliance, mm-hmm. which is a, a now a, becoming a much bigger issue with the, uh, the D- Department of Labor's new fiduciary rule. Right. And the, what I see is right now when you do risk tolerance, you're asking clients a series of questions. And different vendors, uh, there's Finmetrica, there, which is the old school. They've been around for 20 years. There's the new players like Riskalyze and Rickstrema, which are the newer players that do risk tolerance questionnaires and portfolio crash testing. Hidden Levers does the portfolio crash testing. But just focusing on the risk tolerance questionnaire, you're, you're asking clients a series of questions to, to try to gather what their tolerance is and what their risk profile is. But... People, once you ask them the question, their conscious their conscious mind kicks in. And again, they're not in the industry. They don't necessarily understand what it means to accept a certain amount of risk within a certain standard deviation, within a certain range. Even if you show them how much money you could gain or lose, which some firms now do more graphically, mm-hmm. um, they still may not necessarily understand what that means or what their long-term goals are. So what I see happening, and this is like a five or 10 years out, is the data aggregation firms have access to so much data, you know, billions and billions of individual transactions across an entire consumer's life and across millions of consumers' lives. And once they can use their big data tools and their big data analytics to analyze all of that, uh, and once they can combine 
uh, and the client, of course, gives them the, uh, the, the, the permission to do so, looking at a client's financial transactions, every credit card transaction, everything, everything they bought and sold, mm-hmm. uh, so everything they bought on the credit cards, every transfer uh, transaction they've done, every social media post, every email. Once you have all that information uh, and you can crunch it and analyze it, you can really have a much better understanding of the client's risk tolerance than the client even thinks he has. Mm -hmm. Because you really know way more about that client's uh, spending habits, his budgeting, his whole financial life based on all his years of transactions than the client thinks he does. So you can so the risk tolerance and and will automatically generate, so here's where you really are, and it'll show them the data. And that'll really direct clients to understand better what their own patterns and habits are than what they think they want to do, mm-hmm. which is which is different. You know, it's your conscious mind versus your unconscious mind. And the, the once you ask the question, you've now have you now have put a filter on things. Exactly. You know what your paradigm is and where you what what you where you come from, rather than how things. And no one really look can look back across all their transactions and, and all their budgeting over many years to understand what their patterns are. They sort of see things in a current state. You know what they spent the last six months or or even less. Right. So this will. I think once that technology is perfected in five or 10 years, that'll become the norm. You won't be asking clients a series of 20, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 questions. You'll just say, let's run your data. Mm-hmm. It'll do the analysis and it'll come back. Here's where your risk, is, your risk tolerance really is. That, that's so spot on. And it's funny because the, I was thinking of a more, I guess, analog uh, example of that. And, and that's over the course of the last couple of years, uh, the credit card company that I work with provides an annual review, an annual report. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I remember opening it up just recently, and it's the difference between if you were to ask me where I thought I was spending money versus where I was really spending money. Sure. That when I was looking at the report, that the data was different than what I would have thought in my mind. And so even when you go through those risk tolerance questionnaires, I think people kind of know what they want the end result to be because mm-hmm. they've almost um, they've almost pigeonholed themselves into a specific category and saying I'm probably more risk adverse. Uh, but I'm going to answer the question so that it actually validates my thoughts of who I am as opposed to what you really are. So I see, I, and I think that that's one of the areas that we've been focused on and looking at this omni-channel advisor um, and the predictive analytics in assisting and ways that you can leverage big data to help mm. the advisor community to help their clients make better decisions because you have all that information and that intelligence, which is why when we go back to threats, to the industry, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people will look to, let's say, the robo-advisors, and I think it's the financial so financial media that builds it up as being a potential threat. But I think the biggest threat is the one that we may not even be paying much attention to, which would be Google, who has access to the data, or an Amazon, who has all access to the data, being a threat if they decided to move into this space. Yeah, I've talked about that with some of my clients. You know, What would Google do? Mm-hmm. That's a great book by Jeff Jarvis. Uh, I really love that book. Um, you know, if you think about any industry and, and what will Google do and how would they manage to deliver services basically for free just by selling advertising right? or or profiting some other way. Mm-hmm. And some firms have done that, right? That's what Charles Schwab is doing. They're offering it for free and they're making money on the back end somehow. So similar to what your Google gives you search engines, for give you search results for free ostensibly, but they're really selling advertising to you. That's the whole business model of that. So you're being served ads and you're, that's that's your form of payment by looking at the ads to get the free search engine. I mean, and Google tried to get into finance. They had a Google Finance for a short time that that didn't work so well. So I wouldn't put it past them 
to do something like that, but it doesn't seem to be the direction they're going right. at the moment. But with, when, in terms of a threat, well, I, I don't see the, the generic robo-advisor as a threat to the industry. It is a threat to the RIAs and smaller firms that just provide investment management baskets of ETFs mm-hmm. and have been living off that and charging 150 basis points. You know, that's going to go away. That business model will go away. And firms that stick to that model will go away as well. So for that small percentage, it's a threat to them. But to the advisors that provide more value and understand what their value is, it shouldn't be a threat at all. You know, in fact, it will help them because they'll have their own digital channel soon. And they'll be able to bring in clients that they wouldn't have been able to touch before. You know, they can bring in a $10,000 client. Who cares? It's, it's, a, it's on a digital platform. It's scalable. Uh, the, the, the incremental cost is, ni- is, uh, is nil to bring on one $10,000 client or $110,000 clients. So, and in, in reality, you can go down even lower once the technology gets better and the scale gets better. Uh, look at these, like we were talking about before, like firms like Acorns. You know, they, they can bring in a $10 client because right, they're charging so little. Uh, the, the scale is there. You know, the, the systems will just keep running. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, wealth management should not just be available to uh, the mass affluent. It really is needed by the rest of the country because mass affluent is, you know, with what, top 10%. If you look at people with $100,000 or, or $250,000 or more of liquid assets, that's a very small percentage of the population. If you really want to go after the big game, it's, it's the other 90% that have much less but still need financial advice, still need retirement planning, still need expense you know, planning. So being able to serve those clients efficiently can only help the industry. So Greg, many of our listeners and the clients that we serve uh, operate in asset management, wealth management, banking, insurance, and the mortgage industry. Mm-hmm. And so obviously they're working with us because they're building their digital technology, they're, and very specifically on their social space. But as a consultant, and mm-hmm. if you were to you know, have them all in a room, what would you say to them they could be doing more of when it comes to the adoption of social and digital? Uh, well, I would advise them to, take, uh, to follow my lead, which is start a, write a, start a blog. Uh, because the, the, the way the, 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 um, the web has progressed in the past just five years, it's moved away from pure SEO gaming of the system mm-hmm. to content. You know, content is king. Having good content that is linked to by other uh, sites is the best way to get noticed. Uh, if you look at my blog, I spend zero on advertising, but I'm on the first page of a lot of wealth management terms, and that just comes from content. Uh, so you need to focus on um, start. Uh, so starting a blog, I think, is important to get the, the, the message out there and to explain what your value add is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's really finding your own voice. And there's, there's firms that can help you do that. Some firms even have come to me since with my blog, and, and uh, I'm helping some of those firms with, th- with their blogging, their social media. Uh, assigning someone in the company to be the social media manager, mm-hmm. uh, whether they're experts or not, just someone at least to be in charge and to know how things are running, because you need to have a, a, a constant series of, of information going out there. You need to have a, a blog has to be updated on a regular basis. It needs to be promoted. It needs to be cross-linked. You need to put it on different social media platforms. You need to you need to ha- get people talking about it, and the only way to do that is to be engaged. And to, once you're engaged with social media, 
uh, and if you're putting out content that is engaging uh, and is original, then you will get engagement back from the right the right kind of customers. Mm-hmm. And once they're engaged that way, you have a much higher chance of them becoming a prospect than just cold calling or just cold emailing them. Uh, if you're sending them something like uh, on your platform where you can offer them content uh, that would be interesting to them, that is some another way to engage them and, and keep a steady stream of that. So you're really giving them something for free. You're helping to curate the web for your clients. So you're giving them something for free. Like on my blog, I give out information about the industry for free uh, in order to bring in clients. It's, um, I've been successful at that, fortunately. Uh, so that would be my advice to, to any firm looking to improve uh, their social their social experience. Uh, that's good advice. So if people wanted to learn more about you or your organization, what would be the best way for them to find you? The best way for them to find me is to Google me. Mm-hmm. You can just Google Craig Eskowitz or Ezra Group. Uh, you can find me on my blog at wmtoday.com. That's wwealthmmanagementtoday.com. Or my company website, ezragroupllc.com. And we'll be sure to add all those links to the show notes that accompany the podcast on uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio. Thank you so much for stopping by here at uh, Studio 360 at Hearsay Social during your visit here to San Francisco. And we wish you best of luck as you go visit with your clients here in the city. It was a supreme pleasure and an honor to be here, Victor. Thank you very much. So welcome back. So that was the interview with uh, Craig Iskowitz of the Ezra Group. And uh, you can always tell someone who's very much immersed in the financial services industry and certainly has an understanding of both the technology and the industry to be able to speak to it. So there's a number of different takeaways and comments very specifically about how Craig works with his clients in taking a look at all these changes and the trends that are taking place in technology overall and how that applies to financial services, which is not unlike what we do here at uh, Here's a Social and looking at different ways and approaches that advisors, agents, producers, wholesalers, people in this industry can really leverage technology to create you know, much richer relationships with their clients. And he had a very interesting take, I think, on robo-advisors. Um, I think he said robo-advisor is dead and there really is no future for that B2C low-touch uh, solution. So I think time will play out, and we'll take a look at how the robo-advisor continues to fare in the years to come. Um, but I think we agree very much on a number of different areas between Craig and myself on where we think the industry's headed and how the industry's really embracing technology. Um, one of the other things that I thought was really important, and I think it's going to be a theme we're going to see a lot in uh, 2016, is how organizations are really leveraging data. So with the amount of data aggregation that's taking place and then applying machine learning and applying analytics, how much of the decisions on approaches and strategies are going to be really driven by having access to this data. So I I anticipate we're going to see more of this in the next year. I think data, I think cybersecurity, there's a number of different trends I think that are going to be taking a much greater part of the conversation over the course of the next year. And uh, I'm going to hold off on any of the predictions for 2016 right now outside of those two because we are looking at preparing a show before the end of the year, or at least early in the year. We're going to really look at that and explore what we think 2016 might look like from a digital perspective. 
So I want to thank Craig once again for coming by to uh, San Francisco, visiting me here at Studio 360 and sharing his thoughts on digital within the industry and having a conversation regarding changes that we're seeing. And so, Craig, thank you so much. I will include all the links to the various uh, websites and references that we made throughout the podcast, and we encourage you to find those in our show notes. As always, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, please send me an email at onair at hearsaycorp.com, or you can also send me a tweet to at Victor Gaxiola, use hashtag HS on air. So once again, this is Victor Gaxiola, Senior Customer Advocacy Manager here at Hearsay Social in San Francisco. Thanks again for listening, and we hope to see you next week. This has been a Hearsay Social production, recorded in our state-of-the-art recording studios in San Francisco, California, the Great Golden State, seated at the watery edge of the majestic Pacific Ocean. We'd like to take this brief moment in the vast expanse of time to thank you, our listeners, for lending us your ears, for we understand that your time is precious. Like the most delicately crafted pearl, cradled at the bottom of the sea. Truly, we hope to our most inner heart and soul that you'll consider joining us for next week's episode. But until then, Godspeed, and follow us on Twitter 